Welcome to Mincast, the official podcast of Mincast. We're an independent online news service dedicated to watchdog journalism that holds the powerful to account, exposing the money interest that influences policies right here at home and abroad, while we go behind the headlines to bring you stories the corporate mainstream media doesn't want you to hear. I'm your host, Manar Muhawish, founder and editor-in-chief of Mint Press News. And I'm your co-host, Whitney Webb, and together we will not only discuss and analyze the biggest stories that the government and their media lapdogs want swept under the rug, but also interview dissenting voices, independent researchers, and journalists who the establishment would rather silence. Today, we are talking to Oliver Ali Vargas, a British-Bolivian journalist who is in Bolivia covering the post-coup crisis there for Mint Press News. Vargas has been on the ground reporting on the lead-up to Bolivia's elections, which are scheduled to take place on May 3rd of this year. Last November, the democratically elected government of former Bolivian President Evo Morales was removed in a U.S.-backed coup that forced Morales to flee to Mexico and then to Argentina. Morales and his party, MAS, have since faced persecution, with several political allies and former Morales ministers now imprisoned. Other former ministers and officials have been forced to seek refuge in the Mexican embassy in the Bolivian capital of La Paz in order to avoid arrest. Aside from the threats faced by by Morales' political allies, his supporters have also faced aggression from the far-right post-coup government, which has killed scores of unarmed protesters and wounded even more, especially in the early days that followed the coup. Now, despite this, Morales' successor Luis Arce has emerged as the election frontrunner, according to recent polls. However, Bolivia's so-called interim president, Janine Añez, has vowed to fight to stay in power, a move that has fragmented Bolivia's pro-coup right, which have failed to unite in their effort to prevent Morales' mass party from retaking power. This backdrop has led many to worry that Bolivia's upcoming election could be marred by election fraud and manipulation and influenced by the United States. Earlier this year, Evo Morales himself, despite living in exile in Argentina, announced his plans to run for Bolivia's Senate. Following the announcement of his Senate candidacy, Morales said he received numerous threats from the United States and was recently barred by a Bolivian court from running for Senate, a decision that Morales and his allies argue was orchestrated by the Trump administration. Morales has said he plans to appeal the court's decision. Now, Ali joins us now to discuss the latest election news from post-coup Bolivia. Uh, Ali, it's great to have you join us here on Mintcast. First, we wanted to ask you about the interim government's growing list of political prisoners. So, since the interim government of Janine um, Añez took over late last year, numerous former ministers and officials in Morales' previous government have been arrested and imprisoned, with the most recent being uh, Cesar Cocorico. How has the Anya's government been using these political prisoners and threats of imprisonment to consolidate control? And how may this impact Bolivia's upcoming elections? Um, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very difficult situation. Uh, the Cesar Cocorico was arrested yesterday. Today, there was another arrest of the former mass candidate to, the, for, to be mayor of La Paz. And really, most days, there's a new one. Um, And the aim of this is, first and foremost, to create an environment of fear uh, just by the sheer amount of arrests that that keep happening. Every week, there's there's another few. So they want to create an environment in which, you know, everyone who uh, is a leftist or held some sort of position within the last government and would do so again if the mass were to win, so that they feel a sense of fear of, you know, 
is it going to be me next? You know, am I going to be the one to get taken away next? Because they're, they're taking some people who, um, most of them were high profile people, but who weren't necessarily high profile, but by the end, including, as I said, the woman who was arrested today, whose name, Felipe Wanka is her name. Uh, she was a candidate, she was very high profile about three years ago, and she was hated by, um, she was the first indigenous woman to run to be mayor of La Paz. And she she just lost out by a small margin, but she's again she she's now been taken in for something that has already been settled three years ago, and they wanna they wanna settle scores you know they want to settle scores with the people they've long um, had conflicts with they've long you know felt felt resentment about, and really in uh, with this backdrop of arrests but not also arrests also threats against the most senior candidates such as Luis Arce, he's got charges hanging over him, such as Andronico Rodriguez, the main Senate candidate um, in the Cochabamba region, he's got charges hanging over him. The point of this is to create fear, but there's very little international outcry at the same time. Uh, the, the main sort of US-based international human rights organizations have said very little. In fact, in the early days, the Human Rights Watch praised the Bolivian coup government for not having banned the mass in the upcoming elections. They've since said once that their director for the Americas has sort of declared himself once criticizing the the decisions of, you know, the, some of the ways that they've used the court system in a political way. But other than that, there's been a lot of silence. So that's how the, the mass, the left, are going into these elections with with these kind of fake charges invented from one day to the next, not only hanging over lots of people, but, you know, could, could fall to any person at any time. So um, one recent poll from earlier this month actually showed that um, Louise Arce, who's the former, who you mentioned just a second ago, and is the former economy minister under Morales, um, this latest poll showed him to be uh, essentially the front runner in Bolivia's upcoming election on May 3rd, with about 30.1, uh, 31% of Bolivians supporting his candidacy, compared to about 16.5% for uh, the so-called interim president, uh, Janine Añez. Do you think Añez's interim government will, um, or so-called interim government, would allow an Arce victory? Um, and is there concern among everyday Bolivians that you've been talking to about election manipulation? Yeah, there's an absolutely huge concern amongst every anyone you talk to who um, plans to vote for the mass um, is extremely worried that their vote, whether or not their vote will even be registered, whether you know whether what will happen on election day to to their vote, especially in the rural areas. There's very little oversight monitoring. There'll likely be not be very many international observers in many of the sort of far-flung, isolated places in the Amazon or in the Andean regions. So no, people are very concerned. And everyone sort of knows, everyone sort of knows that the real fraud is already beginning to happen. So we had this sort of huge report today uh, published in the Washington Post disproving the claims that there was electro fraud under Evon. But everyone, everyone recognizes that uh, the fraud at the level of persecution of the candidates is already happening. Everyone knows that the Electoral Council is taking, that's organizing these elections is 
not a neutral body is doing this in cooperation with OAS and also USAID. USAID was specifically asked to come in and help with sort of the technical side of organizing the elections. And of course, USAID was expelled by Evo's government precisely because they were interfering in internal affairs. So they're, they're an organization that is biased against one of the candidates and they're going to be the one holding this. Um, so that's the, those are the main concerns about how this election is being carried out. And that's before election day. Let's say after election day, even if the mass are allowed, even if all the votes are registered correctly and the mass win as they likely will do, if votes are registered correctly, then who's to say what will take place afterwards? This is a government that um, doesn't respect most sort of basic norms of, of, of international law. I mean, just after the coup, they signed a decree giving legal immunity to soldiers uh, to, to repress protests, which they only repealed after the protests had died away, had been crushed. So are they, is this a sort of government that's going to hand power over easily? Are they going to sort of walk away after having, after all of this, you know, after having given it their all and changing everything, you know, trying to change everything that ever did um, on foreign policy, moving, re reorientating towards the US, towards Israel, away from Cuba, Venezuela, you know, getting rid of most of the personnel of the state, um, changing whole areas of deep state policy. Are they going to be just, well, okay, well, you know, <laughs> we had our turn. I guess we lost fair and square. A lot of people are very worried that they'll try and cling to power illegally. Now, following last November's coup, um, hundreds of thousands of the indigenous Bolivians have taken to the street um, in protest and in what it's been described as an uprising. Um, they have been at the forefront of opposing the Añez-led government and the coup. Can you describe why so many indigenous Bolivians are opposed to the coup? How um, and what they're saying about it and how they have resisted the coup from November to now and what role this large demographic is set to play in the upcoming elections. Yeah, that's right. This, the indigenous mood, the organized indigenous movements have been central to, to everything that's been happening in Bolivia. And really when you speak to people, when I've, you know, uh, speak, spoken to maybe union members or indigenous activists, the the first, when they're talking about you know why they why they oppose the current government or why they supported Evo Morales' government, they very rarely mention maybe specific policies or uh, specific moments. Rather, people always speak in extremely historical terms in and in terms of uh, of ownership. Like they, people felt that this was for the first time in Bolivian history a government that belonged to them. And that's rooted in how the mass as an organization exists. It's not a party that you join as an individual, you know, maybe clicking on uh, on a website and putting in your bank details. Rather, it's an organization, there's a coalition of the already existing indigenous groups. And that represents the first time ever that indigenous groups had direct access to power, had direct access to being able to choose representatives from their own movements. So... The, the the ousting of Evo Morales wasn't about, you know, just an ousting of a person that they liked, that they supported. 
was a, they felt that it was a coup against everyone, against all of the indigenous groups that for the first time had been able to, to shape their own future, to shape their present. So that's not something that goes away overnight, obviously. So this coup is, has triumphed. And there's a huge level of persecution. But that support, that base of support has remained solid, completely solid. There's no, no section of it has peeled away between the coup and now. And that's because people are, people's commitment to the mass in, amongst indigenous communities specifically is something that goes far beyond an electoral cycle or um, a specific moment. It's something that's incredibly, um, that people feel is part of them at this point. They're there, you know, people aren't gonna be, are, are no longer willing to go back to how things were before where in most indigenous people were entirely excluded from politics, certainly excluded from the upper echelons of politics. So that's that's how indigenous people are viewing the kind of political climate at the moment. And it's a very different way to how maybe some indigenous groups in other countries that where there's less organization, for example, in Peru, where indigenous communities don't, aren't as organized on a political level. Whereas in Bolivia, it's, um, since, you know, especially since Evo Morales became a union leader back in the 90s, the indigenous movement in Bolivia specifically has been an incredibly political movement and has gone out of, say, community struggles, local struggles, and into sort of national, political, even, say, revolutionary struggles. So some have argued that Luis Arce's frontrunner status could be due to the inability of the right-leaning parties to form a united front to run against Arce and the Mass Party. Why do you think Bolivia's right were unable to unite behind a single candidate? And how do you think this will impact any effort to rig or manipulate um, election results in May? Yeah, this is, this is a, a sore point for the right, somewhat of an embarrassment in that they've They've done all of this. They've managed to run a government at this point, but they haven't been able to um, at least narrow down the field. There's currently eight or seven right-wing uh, options on the ballot paper, and no one's quite sure exactly how it came to that. My own explanation would be that they represent very different bases of, uh, of, of the Bolivian elites that have long been at war with each other. I mean, Añez and the other far-right coup leader, Camacho, represent the sort of um, the land-owning elites in the east of the country that holds, you know, huge, huge areas of land that lost out during the nationalization of the natural gas, which was in their territories. Whereas the other, the main, front, so the, the, the main figure of the opposition, which is Carlos Mesa, he's someone who represents sort of the middle class of La Paz, of the cities of the... Um, uh, more liberal, you would say. He, he can be certainly characterized as a neoliberal centrist as opposed to some of the more fanatical, far-right, religious um, sections around Añez and around Camacho. But So these are deep divisions that are very historical as well. However, th it's not impossible that they won't be able to unite. It's not impossible that, for example, the U.S. Embassy won't intervene and force them to sort of sit down with each other and you know, sort something out. I mean, I'm sure that the Agnes's chief advisor, her chief advisor is a man named Eric Ferranda, and he was before this, before he was seconded, he was the chief advisor to the U.S. Embassy in Bolivia for 25 years. So he'd been around for a long time, long before Evo Morales, 
and he's been sort of managing the embassy's affairs in Bolivia during that time. And so he's he's you know he's not a novice. He'll be he'll be uh, working to try and hammer out a way in which the opposition can unite. And and maybe the U.S. embassy will manage to do that. But it's also not given because there's you know Bolivia's had a lot of right-wing presidents that have cooperated extremely closely with the U.S. have had U.S. advisors in their immediate circles, and they often haven't listened to them. So the last the president um, that was in, was overthrown in 2003 by Evo Morales' sort of led social movements is a guy called Goni, and he employed a team of sort of American PR strategists, including people like James Carville, who I found out has reappeared to talk about the Democrats in the U.S. But it was people like that. After he was elected, they were screaming at him. They were screaming at him to not go as far on certain things, to be more strategic. To, um, there was a big argument within there in a circle about uh, raising the minimum wage. And you, these U.S. advisors were setting out sort of strategic ways in which the, these administrations could save themselves. But they were often ignored. Sometimes their advice was taken. Sometimes they were simply frozen out. So I think it'd be important not to underestimate how stubborn and sort of hard-headed these sort of far-right figures in Bolivia can be. And that even if the U.S. embassy intervenes, even I'm probably sure they have already intervened, um, it's not certain that the U.S. embassy can can build something concrete out of uh, the mess that exists currently. Now, during last November's coup in Bolivia, um, Argentinian uh, journalist Sebastian Moro was believed to have been the victim of a politically motivated um, murder after publicly denouncing the coup. So as a journalist, Ali, continuing to cover the realities on the ground in post-coup Bolivia, have you or any of your colleagues been threatened or felt unsafe to, due to the nature um, of your work, especially as independent journalists? And, um, you know, what are some of the pressures and things that journalists are facing who are challenging uh, the coup narrative? Yeah, I mean, the case of this Argentine model, this Argentinian journalist, is inc- you know is incredibly worrying for anyone else who's working here. He's someone who was killed. His his death has at the moment, as up till now, not even been registered with the authorities. The um, none of the sort of mainstream media outlets, uh, the right wing mainstream media outlets, have made any kind of appeals about his case. Have have talked about his case. He's kind of slipped from view completely. The only people still talking about him are other progressive journalists and. Uh, sort of leftists in Argentina who, you know, are in contact with his family. And, yeah, I mean, you know, this this happened, and that killing took place during the days when there was no rule of law, when there was the decree that the military had free reign to, um, that they would face no legal consequences for what they did during their, during the weeks of repression. So there's, you know, is that going to happen again? Is that sort of state of emergency type Thing can happen again, and you know, for me personally, has you know, I do worry. I've you know, I'm happy to. I haven't faced any kind of uh, physical aggression so far, but you know, I get messages all the time on <laughs> on things like Twitter. Sort of, I've had people accuse saying that they've denou- they're going to denounce me for sedition. They're going to go to the police and report me for sedition, which is you know, as you might have seen, is the favorite charge that's been thrown around in Bolivia at the moment. Everyone that they want to jail, but haven't actually got any reason to. 
they'll say that oh yeah he's guilty of sedition and um and yeah and people can go away for a long time for for things like that at the moment there's sort of a, a period of relative calm you could say but everyone there's no one in bolivia no that thinks that this is going to last forever everyone knows that something um big is is just around the corner and so um I, I think the most important thing to combat that sort of thing is to keep getting information out there about you know so that the internationally speaking so that the government knows that they can't do things without the world watching they can't um sort of disappear people and kill people off without the world watching and i think the more international tension there is for more on a more permanent basis the 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 more the government might have to think twice about uh, what they do and um, and not just in in terms of repression but also in terms of rigging the elections in in may you know they they might um have to back off or get more they might get more scared about um rigging the elections if they feel that the, the international community is watching and they they're really very angry about the fact that they've they've lost the support of huge sections of the international community. They've they've had diplomatic wars, full-blown diplomatic wars with countries like Mexico and Spain, which are you know some of the most important countries that a Latin American uh, government would have to be on good terms with and cooperate with. So I think this is really having some effect. And if it can be sort of ratcheted up a bit more, then that would be uh, that would be a good thing certainly. So about one month after the coup last year, the post-coup government requested the aid of Israel in fighting quote-unquote terrorism, claiming that they had uncovered plots by Venezuela's government to destabilize Bolivia. Since then, ties between Israel and Bolivia have deepened further. So what can you tell us about the changes in Bolivia-Israel ties since the coup took place last November? Yeah, that's um, a huge sort of change in direction of foreign policy which the government doesn't have any mandate for. I mean, to this day, the, gov the government calls themselves an interim transitional government. And I think what most people and what the Bolivian government themselves recognize that as, as essentially a caretaker government, sort of keep, you know, keep things ticking over until new elections can be held. But in reality, what they've done is change everything. And the, the case of Israel is, is one. So under Eva Morales, after... Operation Protective Edge, he he sort of cut diplomatic ties. With, they'd already been downgraded, but after that, he fully cut diplomatic ties with Israel in solidarity with the people of Gaza and the people being bombarded at the time. <coughs> and that also included scaling back the preferential visa arrangements that Israel had under the previous governments and where Israel Israelis were able to enter without any kind of visas. He now he withdrew that and said that they have to um, apply for visas, things like this. And that's something that one of the first things that was changed, one of the first um, sort of policy changes under the new coup government was to establish diplomatic ties with Israel, which is to say, you know, re-establishing embassies and fully normal ties. And of course, lifting and you know, bringing back the preferential visa treatments. And then, of course, what happened was um, a developing of much deeper ties in other areas. So things like the um, the so-called cooperation on anti-terrorism, 
and this is sort of creating elite uh, anti-terror units in the big cities to target what they say is uh, subversive foreigners. They have this idea that, you know, everything would be fine in Bolivia. No one would be angry if only, you know, various unnamed foreigners weren't coming in and causing this. I mean, this is in a country where there's very little foreigners anyway. Um, of course, the, the issue of Venezuela is something that every right-wing government in Latin America uses to explain sort of social anger in their own countries. Um, they've, you know, they've been saying that, for example, uh, members of Peruvian guerrilla groups that actually no longer exist anymore are responsible for this kind of thing. And under this pretext, they've brought in Israeli advisors. Um, so beyond this, the, obviously the cooperation on military matters with the US has been turned up enormously. And yeah, and I, but on, you know, just on the wider point, I think it's worth thinking about that one of the first things in the, you know, in the first few weeks of the government when there was so much to do, one of the first things that changed after the coup was the issue of foreign policy and specifically the issue of turning towards the US and Israel and turning away from regional allies like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. And I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, to truly understand the crisis in Bolivia, one has to look at this from a foreign policy uh, economic perspective. Um, under Morales, the economy was booming even after his government rejected IMF loans. What are the true economic motivations for the, for the United States to overthrow the Morales government and install a right-wing government. Um, how does the government of Añez play into supporting we uh, Western economic interests in Bolivia? And if you can, you know, touch on uh, resource interests as well uh, and military interests, that would be excellent. Yeah, of course. I mean, on the over the last fourteen years under Evo Morales' government, they've done a lot of things that have, have inconvenienced the U.S. They cut ties with the U.S., but they've also in a number of key areas, um, obviously they've expelled U.S. They expelled U.S. military bases that were completely incorporated into the structure of the Bolivian military before this, um, which is ironic given the sort of, given the fact that it was the military that overthrew Morales, because it was actually Evo that returned some level of dignity to the military before Evo. The military, um, especially in the Chapari region, which which I'm based in now. They're actually at the command of U.S. commanders, DEA commanders, and Bolivia ever expelled them and like returned some level of sovereignty to the military. But anyway, but things like this, um, their increased cooperation with Cuba and Venezuela in terms of security, military matters, and then, of course, very importantly, is the economy. Now, in Bolivia, uh, the largest sort of area of natural resources is natural gas. Is, is the sort of center of Latin America for natural gas. That was nationalized in the first year of Evo Morales' government. And a number of other areas in mining, um, things like this, that was also brought back into public ownership. Not completely, some areas were left to still um, for international cooperation, but the, the big majority was brought back into public ownership. And this, I think, was was a defeat for the US, a defeat that... They had to accept at some level in that, you know, the government ever governed for 14 years and they weren't able to get rid of him. But the stakes were certainly raised in the past year, past two years, with 
the the realization that Bolivia had the largest lithium deposits anywhere in the world. And of course, lithium is an incredibly important, is going to be an incredibly important product as the world moves towards things like green technologies, um, electric powered cars. These are all things that lithium are useful and Bolivia is sitting on top of all of it. When they announced, um, so yeah, in, the, in this past year, they began to process lithium in state-owned factories. And what was important about this is that they weren't just sort of gathering the lithium as the state and sort of selling it off around the world at, you know, sort of as a primary resource. What they were doing was that they were building factories um, and they had some international agreements on this with a German company, for example, that held a minority stake. But the, what they're doing here, they're building companies where the lithium could be processed into products. So you weren't just selling the material for cheaply. You're actually making natural products. So batteries, for example, uh, electrical cars, all of these sorts of things so that Bolivia could actually sell them. Obviously, you sell those things for their value-added products, you just call them. You know, that you sell them for a much higher price than you would the raw material. And that means that that's extra revenue for the state, for the public that can be spent on, you know, hospitals, schools, and roads or whatever. Um, and this sort of presents a problem for the U.S. because that sort of disrupts a lot of the global relationships that they want to maintain, you know, internationally. Like processing these sorts of things, whether it's oil or gas or anything, is not supposed to be the job of countries like Bolivia or like Venezuela. It's supposed to be the job of the US. It's supposed to be, you know, the kind of relationship they maintain with Mexico, for example, where so Mexico exports its oil to the US and then it's refined, the crude oil to the US, and then it's refined in the US and then sent back, sold back for a higher price to Mexico. Those are the, um, and, and you know, and when the leftist president of Mexico was elected, he ran on a platform saying that we should build our own refineries here. And that ruffled a lot of feathers as well. So Bolivia was disrupting in a really big way those kind of relationships that the US had to maintain. Um, they were bringing, they were forming allies that were, you know, that were not the US. They were, you know, had industrial relations, sort of agreements with Iran, for example. They were, as I said, this German company was being brought in, um, the deepening ties of the EU, and the, America was being left out, the US was being left out, and this is extremely problematic, of course. And so they, um, the the long attempt to to destabilize Evan Morales, to get rid of Evan Morales, became much more intense in the past year. And now, of course, it's triumphed. Um, but of course, you know, beyond the, just the situation in Bolivia, of course, this is part of also a wider strategy to, to implement their foreign policy in Latin America, so to take away an ally from Venezuela. You know, Bolivia was a country that cooperated, had cooperation agreements with Venezuela. That has now gone. Venezuela is today more isolated than it was before. Cuba, of course, Bolivia had deep ties with Cuba. That's now gone. So US foreign policy aims, not only in Bolivia, are uh, triumphing, they're also um, becoming realized in Venezuela, in Cuba, that you know the, the White House foreign policy apparatchiks are you know, getting what they want there as well. 
So some people have claimed that another underlying factor behind the U.S. decision to back the overthrow of Morales was because Morales had developed economic ties with China and was allowing Chinese companies, as opposed to American or Western companies, to develop Bolivian resources. Do you think the U.S.'s, uh, US's role in Morales' overthrow could be described in part as a U.S.-China proxy conflict, as some, uh, as some have suggested? That's certainly a factor. I'd add to that Russia as well. In fact, there's um, a huge agreement, energy agreement with Russia. They're going to build a nuclear energy plant in Bolivia that has now been cancelled without any kind of explanation. So, and that was set to be an enormous project that was done in cooperation with Russia. So that that's another foreign policy win for the US. Russian influence slowly being pushed out. And of course, yeah, Chinese influence as well. China, um, there's a number of cooperation agreements with China in, you know, in various things in industry, in agriculture. We, you know, we yet to see how much of that is going to be rolled back. But yeah, I think the the issue of proxy sort of proxy wars with, with the U.S. wanting to push out Russia and China out of Latin America is very important to talk about because China and Russia have massively stepped up their their cooperation with Latin American countries. And in fact, they don't, they don't work with Latin America in the way that the US works with Latin America. So for example, China, you know, both China and Russia have economic agreements with both Colombia and Venezuela. Now, Venezuela on the one hand, a leftist government opposes the US and Colombia on the other hand, a right-wing government that works with the US. Yet they work with both. They don't make political demands of the Latin American countries they work with. And that's very attractive for a lot of Latin American countries, including right-wing Latin American governments. As I said, Colombia, um, Argentina, and Macri massively stepped up their cooperation with China and Russia. So this is very concerning for the US. They're already sort of taking advantage of the situation in Bolivia to push out Russia. But yeah, there's... There's certainly a very big sort of geopolitical question um, at play. Now, those well-versed in the history of the U.S. in Latin America uh, will be well aware that last November's coup was actually not the first U.S.-backed coup to take place in Bolivia, as the U.S. has helped overthrow governments in Bolivia several times over the past 100 years. So you could say history is certainly repeating itself. Can you briefly describe the U.S.'s history of intervening in Bolivia and how this has impacted um, Bolivian society over the years? Well, yeah, I mean, it would be impossible to count the number of U.S.-backed coups. I think most historians would, you know, um, it would take them a minute to actually write down exactly how many. I mean, Bolivia is a country where you've had presidents come in for just a few hours before being overthrown in a coup. It's had the most presidents of anywhere in South America. Um, and yeah, I mean, just that in itself is something that's played an incredibly destabilized, is not allowed the Bolivian state to develop in an independent sovereign way. You know, Evo Morales is 14 years in power with the longest period, the longest stretch of unbroken democracy. I think that's very important to, to remember. But yeah, of course, on, on a political level, they've undermined it in that way. On an economic level, you know, as in most Latin American countries, they have long had, you know, a presence backed by a military presence, you know, military bases, things like this. And also there's a culture influence, a culture influence that 
has tied the Latin American elite to the U.S. to you know, I don't want to say the American dream, but you know the the Miami lifestyle, the connections to to Miami, to the shopping trips, things like this. And what that what that has caused over the years is sort of a huge cultural polarization that has not allowed. Bolivia and other Latin American countries as well to really develop a sense of national identity of uh, a unified national identity because on the one hand you've got a mass of ordinary people who you know are indigenous who um, have their own forms of culture whereas on the other hand you have an elite and a large sort of middle class section that wants to sort of that wants to reach the elite that looked to the U.S. as a cultural model, the U.S. cultural norms, U.S. sort of aspirations. Um, you know, they see that as as the final aim, as the final form of government they want to build, as the final form of sort of economy and lifestyle they want to build. And what comes out of that is that people is that those people look down on the rest of their country. They see the, you know, they think that the poverty of their countries of Latin America is because there exists a majority that failed to understand, you know, the superiority of the U.S., of the U.S. way of doing things. You know, if only they could be educated by us, if only they could, you know, see the wonders of Miami, then maybe, you know, Latin America could be great again. Things like this. This is a kind of discourse. So when your country is led by people like that, how do you, how do you build a nation state? How do you build... A sovereign country and national culture is incredibly difficult and that's something in Bolivia was a huge point of contention you know the middle class elites especially in Bolivia saw their living standards rise enormously under the past 14 years of Evo Morales' government you know when your economy triples in size that tide lifts all boats so to speak but even though their living standards were growing they felt an incredible amount of resentment at the government and the resentment they weren't always able to articulate even, but which was rooted in the fact that they could not believe, they could not believe that, you know, an uneducated indigenous person who hasn't even been to university, hasn't even been to Miami once, you know, that this person is now governing us. Whereas me, you know, I went to private school, I, I studied in the US, I go, you know, I go shopping in Miami every few weeks, I've, you know, read these books, these books in English. And yet, you know, where am I? Where, why aren't I the one with access to the levers of power? Why don't my children, you know, get to go into the revolving door of politics or to, to board the gravy train, so to speak? And to see, you know, these women with in traditional clothing walking about ministries, government ministries, was incredibly offensive to, to Bolivia's elites. It was incredibly upsetting because that's supposed to be them. And... Um, that's, that explains the sort of the level of personal hatred that they had for everyone in the lead up to the coup, and which you saw in things like, you know, the attacks on his supporters, burning people's houses. That's where it comes from. Well, no small number of indigenous Bolivians have accused Janine Añez of harboring racist beliefs against indigenous Bolivians and particularly indigenous religious beliefs. What role has race historically played in post-colonial Bolivia and what role does it continue to play in the lead up to the upcoming Bolivian election? Yeah, I mean, when she, she before all of this coup, Añez was an unknown person. She was a senator for a small party. Um, she got 4% of the last elections. 
and she she didn't have any kind of national profile she was only really known in her area so as soon as she became president people began to find all these things about her including old tweets and i say old they weren't from when she was young it's from last year where she was talking about um you know Bolivia must rid itself of these indigenous satanic rituals, you know. Um, no one can can sort of go against the word of God. And these, you know, these Indi- these Indians, are, you know, have their own figures. They have their own music and dance and um, figures of worship. You know, this is satanic. That That's the sort of attitude um, that is dominant amongst the elites, especially sort of the higher elites in the east of the country. As I said, Agnes comes from the region of sort of eastern landowners um, in the lowlands in the Amazon. That's the that's their culture. That's where they come from. And so, as I said before, Bolivia and Latin America generally has it. It doesn't have a unified national identity precisely because their elites are culturally so tied to the western ways of thinking to in particular the u.s and you know it, it makes it incredibly difficult to build um to build a country that can move forward as one and what that means is that then countries are weaker and they can't you know impose themselves in a sovereign manner people have less um are less confident about the ability of their own country to, for example, nas- to take control of his own resources, to take control of the ca- commanding heights of his own economy. You know, if if these white people from the US are so superior, shouldn't we let them do it? You know, maybe if we do it, we'll we'll mess it all up. You know, and the reason Evo Morales's government was so important on a cultural level, I think internationally, is because, precisely because they dispelled all of that myth. They took out all of these people who, you know, had gone to educated in Chicago or Harvard. They took them all out, the so-called, you know, clever elites, U.S., privately educated. They took them out and they put in a load of of miners, a load of indigenous people to run things. And what happened? In reality, the country flourished in that time. The economy tripled in size, Um, you know, living standards more than tripled during that time. They ran things in a much more efficient manner, in a much more successful manner than the white elites traditionally had. And that has left what that's left in Bolivia is a sense of confidence amongst the massive indigenous people. That there's no reason for us to, you know, accept being servants once again. And I think that's a lesson that can definitely applies to the rest of Latin America. And you know, most indigenous movements, I think, do look to across Latin America, do look to Bolivia for, as a model, as a model that we can run things ourselves, that, you know, the peoples of Latin America have the capacity um, to, to run our own countries in a successful way. And in fact, it's the white elites with their attachment to the U.S. that are keeping Latin, that is keeping Latin America deliberately underdeveloped. Because as I was talking about earlier, the issue of natural resources, it serves the white elites who, you know, who control these natural resources to sell the primary raw material abroad. They're the ones, you know, they get rich off selling the sort of raw materials and they don't have to put the investment into developing and processing these materials. So 
they they get rich off their attachment to the US, but the country gets poorer because it's not able to develop an industrial capacity. Whereas I think people can see now is that the only way to to industrialize, to develop in that way, is if you take these natural resources out of the hands of those traditional elites and into a national project where people look at what's best uh, on a national level. And that, of course, is to be able to control your own natural resources and to develop them to the point where you can um, you can produce value-added product, where you can industrialize under your own command and un- where the revenues of that go to you and where you can then distribute that to, to the people of the country. Well, Ollie, I certainly learned so much from you, and I hope that our listeners have a better understanding of uh, you know, why the coup took place in Bolivia, um, considering there is somewhat of a media blackout on the U.S.-backed coup there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Stay safe, and we will continue to follow your coverage. That's Thank a wrap. you so much, sir. That's a wrap for today's Midcast podcast. This program is 100% listener-supported. You can join the hundreds of financial supporters who make this show possible by becoming a member on our Patreon page. We'll see you next week.